This is a crowd podcast. I think the whole situation is is pretty depressing for me. Four episodes into this podcast, and finally, Frank Wooderich. They have kind of pinned me as the, uh, you know, the, the the front runner to this, you know, what they call massacre and, and just, you know, off the wall, you know, rampage killing and, and, you know, whatever they call it. At the time I recorded this interview, Frank was 26 years old, married, and had three young daughters. He had also just been charged with 18 counts of murder in what the media was calling the Haditha Massacre. Frank told me that he was not guilty, that he killed no one that day. But he was especially adamant about the deaths in House 2. There is no way in hell that I could go in a room with women and children and shoot them. Not a chance in hell. But here's the thing. When I pressed Frank, when I asked him, what happened? If you didn't do it, who did? He told me he couldn't remember, that his mind was a blank. There's certain things I, that I remember for sure, and there's certain things that I don't, and everyone wants answers. And, you know, I can say, I think this happened or, or whatever. I just, I don't remember. Yeah, and, and yes, I wish I did. It's extremely frustrating. It really is. My name is Michael Epstein, and you're listening to my podcast about the longest, most expensive criminal investigation in U.S. military history. Murder in House 2. Episode 4. The Butcher of Haditha. Mom? Yes? Can you please help me? I'm sure Daddy can. I gotta make a salad. Can you help me, Daddy? I don't remember the first time I heard Frank Wooderich's name. It must have been early on, in one of those reports about the unfolding investigation. But I do remember thinking to myself, what drives someone to do something like this? To commit mass murder? Was it the death of his fellow Marine? The war? Maybe it was his training or Marine culture that led Frank to walk into a room full of women and children and shoot everyone. Or maybe Frank Wooderich is just a psychopath. But then I met Frank, and none of those explanations made any sense. I don't know how I got to where I am right now in this situation. There you go. Frank Wooderich is not the bulky, muscled Marine you might imagine him to be. He's actually pretty diminutive and quiet, really quiet, almost like he's not in the room with you. I'm not sure how to adequately describe Frank other than to tell you about a note I jotted down the first time I met him. Gentle, I wrote, with a question mark. Now I know what you're thinking. Epstein, you spent 10 years with an accused killer. You're biased. You have Stockholm Syndrome. How can I trust anything you tell me? I don't know. Maybe I am biased. Maybe you should take everything I say with a grain of salt. Maybe Frank Wooderich really is a killer. I, I don't want to come across as being completely cold about these people being dead um, because that's completely not the case. 
I wish it never had happened. But I never blame myself and I never blame any of the other Marines. I think in the end, uh, it is going to come down to you know, my story presented in front of a judge and a jury. And they're going to see that side of the story and they're going to agree with it. But I refuse to, to torture myself, you know, either thinking what could happen serving the rest of my life in, in jail and not really seeing my family anymore, or just going over that day in my head over and over again. I refuse to do it because if I did, I would be a mess. I won't do it. You know, I owe my family more than that. And I probably wouldn't even be married anymore if I did that. Very early on, as the media frenzy threatened to consume them, Frank and his wife Marisol decided not to discuss the case with their children. Marisol has been amazing because she keeps my mind off everything. If I didn't have her, I'd probably be off every night, you know, drinking and, you know, who knows, getting into trouble and all sorts of stuff. As far as my kids, they don't know. And I will you know, keep it from them, you know, hopefully forever. I recorded this really early in the investigation, before Frank was charged, before anyone had seen the NCIS discovery. No one knew about Stephen Tatum's damning testimony. We hadn't seen Andrew Wright's photographs. Michael Maloney hadn't completed his blood spatter analysis. There was nothing to go on, except Frank's word that he was innocent. And because of that, a defense strategy emerged. One that the Marine Corps itself had fallen back on when the scandal first broke. Specifically, this is war, and bad things happen in war. Okay, I'll I'll just call you. I'll just call you when I'm inbound and we'll we'll get together. Yeah, Uh, that works. Do you want to drive over to the the legal building? Um, This is Frank's lead lawyer, Neil Puckett. I spent two days sitting with him at his house I remember listening to him tell me about everything that happened in a day, and then telling me again, and then telling me again. And I remember thinking that this is a guy that if he just gets on the stand and tells this story, he's going to go free because these guys didn't do anything wrong. It seems like some people kind of get it, some people don't. I don't know. You know? I never could have imagined that Marines of which I am one, uh, would intentionally kill innocent civilians. So I just had the sense that there was going to be an excellent combat-related explanation and that Frank was going to be okay. Based on the findings of the investigations, various charges have been preferred against four Marines relating to the deaths of the Iraqi civilians on 19 November 2005. On December 22, 2006, a little over a year after the incident, Four enlisted Marines, including Frank Wooderich, were charged with various crimes in Haditha. These charges include murder, dereliction of duty, false official statement, and obstruction of justice. The four Marines were Lance Corporal Stephen Tatum, Lance Corporal Justin Sherritt, Corporal Sonic Delacruz, and Staff Sergeant Frank Wooderich. Justin Sherritt was charged with the murders of three Iraqi men in what the government called House 4. Sonic Delacruz with the murders of five Iraqi men at roadside. Stephen Tatum was charged with murdering four people in House 1, including a mother and her son, and two of the children in House 2. 
Frank Witterich was singled out as the ringleader. He was charged with the deaths at Roadside, House 1, House 2, and House 4. In House 2, he was charged with the deaths of two women and four of the five children. Frank's charges included 18 counts of unpremeditated murder uh, and and various other uh, lesser charges. 18 counts of murder. 18 counts of murder. So what I had at that point was a client who was accused of mass murder. That was a first for me. Well, and you have the full weight of the federal government, I mean, and all their resources, right? Well, the Marine Corps at that point had unlimited resources to hire whatever experts they wanted, whatever help they wanted, wherever they needed to travel, they could travel, collect whatever evidence, interview whatever witnesses they want. Unlimited resources were being brought to bear for the sole purpose of putting Frank Woodridge in jail for the rest of his life. Those charges are so overwhelming and so serious, and at that point, you don't know if they're going to seek the death penalty or not. This is Lieutenant Colonel Colby Vokey, one of the Marine lawyers assigned to Frank's defense. Now, where's the uh, best diagrams? We need to get to NCAS, Brady stuff. Colby is a big guy, a Marine, a Texan. I don't think there was a moment we spent together that he didn't have some chew or Dr. Pepper with him. Usually both. Colby was hardly the kind of lawyer to be intimidated by the government's show of force. In fact, just before I met him, his superior imposed a gag order on him for speaking out about the torture of prisoners at Guantanamo Bay, including his own client, a 15-year-old non-combatant named Omar Cotter. In other words, if you were facing the full weight of the United States Marine Corps, Colby Vokey was exactly the kind of lawyer you wanted. It was the largest military investigation in history at that point, and I forget how many agents they used, I think 65 in total. They spent millions of dollars in it. They built a special prosecution team they called Legal Team Charlie, and they stacked it with experienced military lawyers. They have a 10-man team over there. We're gonna push through, we're gonna push ahead to trial. And that's Major Haytham Farage. Colby, as the regional defense counsel at the time, jumped in and said, I'll take the squad leader, the main guy, Woodrich, and says to me, I'm gonna put you on Woodrich as well because he is going to have you know, 18 first-degree murder charges, and so we're going to defend Woodridge. Haytham grew up in Chicago and joined the Marine Corps right out of high school, which meant that before he was an officer, before he was a lawyer, he was a grunt, a lowly rifleman in a platoon. And as you'll see, that experience defined how Haytham saw the case. They can send us to a major military base through the depositions, you know, bring the witness. To go out, take convoys out to secure the area, it's going to be a completely different matter. And that might cause a delay in the trial. These three lawyers, Neil Puckett, Colby Vokey, Haytham Farage, all Marines or former Marines, made up Frank's defense. Then you got those coverings on the windows of the house, too. House 2 is the center point of the whole case. We understood from the beginning that even if we were able to get other charges dismissed, those would never go away. They were too bad. They were too bad. And it was all driven by the photographs. How do you defend someone who's been accused of killing a room full of women and children? How's that even possible? I mean, shouldn't you just go right to the prosecution and ask for the best plea deal you can get? Maybe. 
But in this day and age, you're probably better off taking your case to the media first. Tonight on 60 Minutes. 60 Minutes approached us. I had a meeting with Scott Pelley, and we agreed that if he were allowed to do this, that we would determine the timing of its release. Usually a lawyer wants to severely limit what their client says in public, if they allow them to speak at all. Because there's a real risk that they'll say something that implicates themselves in the crime. We've all seen cop shows where someone has read their Miranda rights. You know, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. There's a reason for that. Anyone charged with a crime in the United States has the Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate themselves, to remain silent. You don't have to talk to the police, or to prosecutors, or the NCIS. And you most definitely don't have to talk to 60 Minutes. But if you do, well, anything you say is fair game. You don't think this is a massacre? No, absolutely not. 24 dead civilians? A massacre, in my mind, by definition, is a large group of people being executed, being killed for absolutely no reason, and that's absolutely not what happened here. I knew that if there was any chance at all to derail the prosecution of Frank Woodridge, it was going to be with a 60 Minutes feature piece with him answering Scott Pelley's hardest questions. Did you fire your weapon in the second house? No, I did not. Neil's decision to put Frank on 60 Minutes was an incredibly risky proposition. The videotape I was filming was protected, in theory at least, by attorney-client privilege. Frank's 60 Minutes interview was not. Anything he said in that broadcast could be used against him at trial. What did you think of the decision to let Frank talk to 60 Minutes? I thought it was a terrible decision. Hatham. I saw it broadcast on Sunday, and I thought, oh, shit. Because I had no idea Neil was going to put him on TV. You know, I got some calls from buddies saying, hey, man, what the fuck are you doing? I said, I had no hand in it. I had no idea they were going to do it. Uh, I'm watching it, and no, I thought it was a terrible idea. And Colby. Even if Frank is trying to be truthful, he provides something that's inaccurate. And certainly if it conflicts with some statement he's made months before, all of a sudden you're impeaching your own client by putting him onto the uh, national news. We reacted how we were supposed to react, our, our training. And I did that to the best of my ability. And the rest of the Marines that were there, you know, they did, they did their job properly as well. For such a high-risk decision, the 60 Minutes broadcast was oddly anticlimactic at least in terms of the case. It didn't change public opinion or move the needle. It certainly didn't, as Neil had hoped, derail the prosecution. But still, I found the whole thing fascinating. There were moments, as Frank watched himself on 60 Minutes, when he seemed genuinely pained by the broadcast, almost as if he was learning about Haditha with the rest of the country. And then there was Neil. Putting Frank on 60 Minutes was his idea, and this should have been a triumphant moment. But that night, Neil had none of his usual bravado. In fact, he seemed oddly subdued, like something was bothering him. You and I left Frank's house after 60 minutes. You remember that? 
Yeah, after we left the house watching 60 Minutes, something that I had learned earlier in the day was was kind of bugging me. And so I, I shared the fact that I was concerned about uh, the photographs uh, and the uh, forensic reports accompanying the photographs. Just before the 60 Minutes broadcast, Neil had finally been given all the NCIS discovery. And in the 10,000 or so pages of witness statements and after-action reports and official communiques, was Special Agent Mike Maloney's blood spatter analysis and the photographs taken by Andrew Wright. And Neil instantly knew that Frank's defense, that he had followed his training, that he did his job to the best of his ability, that his Marines did their job properly as well. In other words, that this is war and bad things happen in war was no defense at all. The report was very detailed and specific and identified two shooter positions and, you know, we later found out that they wouldn't come off that at all. They said it was physically impossible for there to have been fewer than two shooters in their firing, they called near simultaneously. They didn't rule out more than two, but they said there could not have been only one shooter. So what's the challenge now? It changed how you thought about the case, and you had a lot of problems now, right? Well, after that day, uh, that really did change the landscape of the defense because we had to shift from thinking about everybody followed their orders and everybody followed the rules of engagement and everybody did what they were trained to do. Because it was pretty clear to any of us who saw those photographs that people did not follow the rules of engagement and they did not do what they were trained to do. And they simply shot a bunch of people dressed in colorful pajamas and robes on a bed. Not just people. Right, women and children. They shot women and children on a bed with, with what appeared to be no provocation or justification or any threat. You said to me, whoever did that is a psychopath. Yes, I believe that whoever was in that room and did that was a murderer. After reading Mike Maloney's report, Frank's legal team knew that the entire Haditha case was going to come down to House 2. They thought that everything else, roadside, House 1, House 4, all could be defended in court. But they also knew that there was no defense for what happened in House 2. Please stand from the witness stand and turn to face me. Please raise your right hand. You solemnly swear the testimony about the given the case and hearing shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth shall be God. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Please take a seat, sir. As we discussed in a previous episode, Stephen Tatum, one of the Marines charged in this case, gave a sworn statement to the NCIS. In it, he claimed that he was clearing an empty bedroom in House 2 when he heard firing in the room next door. Based on his training, he assumed that there was a Marine engaging the enemy. Tatum stated that he rushed into the bedroom, firing his weapon in support of that Marine. And before he realized it, he shot and killed a child. And according to Tatum, the Marine already in that bedroom the Marine firing at the foot of the bed was his squad leader, Frank Wooderich. Frank emphatically and repeatedly denied this. But whenever we pressed him, what happened in House 2? If you didn't kill those children, who did? He had no answer. Well, he had an answer. It was just wildly implausible. I'm angry at myself for not being able to defend myself because I don't remember. This is Michael, and I don't know about you, but sometimes life gets so busy I don't have the time to cook, but I still want delicious, healthy, gourmet meals. Enter Factor. 
Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals are always fresh and never frozen. Each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat the flexitarian and protein-rich meals, and with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. Last night, I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon, and it was quick and amazing. And if you want more than meals, there are over 60 add-ons, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and smoothies to help you stay fueled and feel good all day. And if you're like me, and you're always looking for gourmet options, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients, like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. You can always pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. So what are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 and use code murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's murderhouse50 at factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. This is the story of Whitney Houston, of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. That feeling. That feeling. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Frank Witterich was charged with an unspeakable crime. Walking into a bedroom full of women and children and methodically shooting them. So what does Frank say about what happens in House 2? What Frank says happened in House 2 is that it's all kind of a blur to him. He confuses the layout, and he just can't remember who did what to whom and, and where, where the Marines went, and, he, and he, he just can't remember. I've often thought, what would I say if I was charged with such a crime? All the details I would give, all the things I would say in my defense. I'd want to convince everyone of my innocence, which was very different than Frank's response. His defense for what happened in House 2 boiled down to little more than I forgot. Everything is just so jumbled up that I cannot remember what happened, and therefore I cannot, I can't even defend myself. I don't know what the fuck happened. At the most important points in the story, he has memory failures. That's one of Frank's lawyers, Haytham Farage. Or where were you in house one? Or do you remember a runner? Did you go upstairs or did you not go upstairs? Uh, he couldn't remember those things. And I could understand that to a certain extent. Marines do a lot of house clearing. You don't remember every house you cleared, but you certainly remember a house that you fired in or when you killed somebody. You ought to. And house two was the worst. It was a serious problem for me that he couldn't remember. 
you really go into a trial at a disadvantage if you can't know what your client knows. You have to know what your client knows. And if you doubt that he's been being truthful with you, I mean, that, that, gives, that gives you all kinds of misgivings. You, you're, you're, you're wondering if you're even proceeding under the right theory. For years, we debated whether Frank could or could not remember what happened in House 2. Maybe he couldn't. Maybe he was traumatized, either because of what he did or what he saw. Maybe that's why he couldn't remember. Maybe he had PTSD. Or maybe he could remember, but was lying to us. But if that was the case, why was he lying? Was it because he actually did it? He killed all those people? Or was it because he knew who the killer was, but didn't want to rat out one of his own Marines? Now, as you and I have discussed, I'm probably biased. Actually, I am biased. I was a member of Frank's defense team. I can't get around that fact. But Frank always seemed like a good guy. He was, for example, an attentive, caring father. And look, I know that's hardly an airtight defense. Good guys can do horrible, unspeakable things, especially in war. But there was such a disconnect between what the government said Frank did in Haditha and who he was back home that I just couldn't square the circle. How can you be a cold-blooded killer in war and a completely different person back home? Is that even possible? I feed you. And Frank seemed honest and forthright. (laughs) Whenever I pressed him for details about Roadside or House 1 or House 4, he'd easily recall everything that happened and in great detail. And those details always lined up with Maloney and Brady's forensic reconstructions. Frank never seemed to be lying. So what gives in House 2? Why can't he remember? Personally, I started to wonder if what happened in House 2 so conflicted with how Frank saw himself, you know, I'm a good, moral person, that his brain wouldn't allow him to construct a memory of what happened. In other words, Frank's instinctive self-defense was to deny himself the ability to form a memory. Neil thought that was bullshit. He thought Frank had heard too many theories of what happened in House 2 from the rest of us, and because of that, he was confused. In other words, Frank's memory had been polluted by his own defense team. Then again, maybe he was just lying. Okay. I want you to close your eyes. Okay. And think. Eventually, Haytham decided to try and see if he could get Frank to remember. Close your eyes. Okay. On a hot July afternoon in Neil's apartment in Northern Virginia. You're going to be you? Okay. Neil's going to be uh, Tatum? Tatum. Haytham walked Frank through a memory exercise by making him act out everything that happened in house two. You're, you're entering the house. Describe the house. What do you see? Um. And so I decided that one of the ways to try and maybe jog his memory, is taken back to that scene by doing a uh, scene reenactment. 
Just as a refresher, there were four Marines that cleared house two, Frank and three others. Tell us where you are. I'm behind you. Salinas is behind me. Corporal Hector Salinas, Lance Corporal Stephen Tatum. Where's Tatum? Um, I don't remember. I think you were... So do remember me being in front of you. Yes. I'm Mendoza. And Private First Class, Humberto Mendoza. Okay, you're, you're arriving at house number two. What are you seeing? Think about the colors, the smells, everything. It's, um, it's, a, it's a clear day, sunny. Okay, what do you smell inside the house? I don't remember smelling anything. Think back, is there, is there, is there a smell of food or? No. Don't smell anything unusual besides a normal like. Keep your eyes closed. Do you smell any gunpowder from just having shot anything? No. My intent was have him engage all his senses in the hope that that will take him back to that time so he can remember what happened. Are you, what, what are you thinking as you approach house number two at this point? That we're gonna, we need to go in here and clear this house because that's where the insurgents went to. Mendoza's in front of you, is that right? That's correct. I wanna hear it, I wanna hear exactly what you said. Same thing as the first house. What's the next thing you hear? Um, Keep your eyes closed. I know this I sounds a I hear a gunshot towards the house, so. Where does it come from? Is it Mendoza? Mendoza is in front, yes. Mendoza. So Mendoza just shot, but no one has said anything. Correct. Okay, let, let's stop just, there. Okay. Okay. Do you remember that audio of Mike Maloney and Tom Brady visiting the crime scene in Iraq? The one where Maloney is counting the bullet holes in the door? Let me play it for you again. Okay, entering, it's a, appears to be a two-story structure that is uh, stucco, mortar, stone uh, construction. One, two, three, possibly four, five, six, seven, possibly seven gunshots uh, in the kitchen door. Those seven shots were fired by private first class Humberto Mendoza. And the man he killed was Yunus Salim Rasif, an unarmed Iraqi civilian who answered the door. Mendoza admitted to shooting Rasif. He never disputed that fact. But he said he did so only because Frank Wooderich told him to shoot whoever answered the door. The Marine Corps never charged Mendoza with Rasif's death. In fact, he was the first Marine to be granted immunity. Okay. You're gonna be Mendoza. Okay. okay. Same as the first house. Has a shot already been taken or not? No, no. After okay. that. I think he's on a knee. I remember him being on a knee. Okay, get on your he's knee. On a knee. Shot fired. What are you doing? For some reason I remember me being the first one in. So I might have went around Mendoza while he was on a knee. Ah, okay, let's back up then. Let's do it exactly the way it happened. Okay, so Mendoza's on a knee. He fires around. Bam! Okay, I go around in front. And when, when I got to the door, I remember the door being open. I remember seeing someone, an Iraqi on the ground. I see a person in black to the left. I fire one round initially, it hits the wall, and the other person like runs back, disappears into the house. So what'd you think? For the first time, he told us he fired his weapon. When earlier he had said, I never fired my weapon in house one or house two. Neil Puckett. That's a problem because he's gone, he's kind of gone on record with us saying that. And he went on record at 60 Minutes. And he went on record with 60 Minutes saying, I, I never fired my weapon. 
so that's that's immediately a problem. So I mean, if he, if he now remembers firing there, is he going to later remember firing in another room? Uh, is is there is there more to come? I'm pretty sure me and Salinas split off from the other two, and we cleared the rooms to the left. I remember clearing rooms that were empty. Tell me what Salinas is doing. He's going towards the far wall. Continue. And he's... Go with it. Go with it. Going to the far wall and covers the, the long end of the room. I wanted him to be able to tell me exactly where he was when the shots were being fired. From what I remember, I enter and just stand at the doorway. Okay, so we're in the room, right? Right. Is there anything say? Does Selena say anything? We both yell, clear. 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 And then what, what, what happens next? You do what you did. We both step out of the room. I don't remember who was first. That's okay. Just go ahead and step out as you best remember. What are you hearing right now? Um, at this point, um, I think once I left that room, I started hearing gunfire coming from the bedroom at the end. I remember seeing Mendoza in there, but I didn't, I didn't see if there was- Did go in? No, I see him come out in there firing. Holy shit. Next week, the bizarre courtroom testimony of Umberto Mendoza. Could you describe for the investigating officer what you saw when you entered that room? When I opened the door, the first thing I see is women and kids laying uh, down the bed. And there's another kid that hiding on the other side of the bed. First of all, uh, did you physically enter into the room? Yes, sir. This is a Crowd Network podcast in association with Buccaneer Media and the Dakota Group. The podcast was produced by Steve Jones and edited by Ed Enniott, with additional editing by Ed Barteski Jr. and R.A. Fetty. Executive producers for Crowd Network are Mike Carr and Mike Pearls, and for Buccaneer Media, Tony Wood and Richard Tulkhart. Original music by Joel Goodman, with additional tracks from BMG Production Music. If you want more Murder In-House 2, join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll be posting videos of what you've just heard, as well as photographs and copies of original investigative documents. Just search for Murder In-House 2. Finally, if you'd like another podcast recommendation, try a Crowd Network original called Death of a Sports Star. Each episode is about the life of someone who sadly died way too young. The story of Flojo, the fastest woman in history, is really worth listening to, as are the episodes about Kobe Bryant and Payne Stewart. Just search for Death of a Sports Star in your podcast app. I'm Michael Epstein. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do? If someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you, would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? (sighs) Download American Vigilante now. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.